Thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast from Visit Aurora from the Rafters of the Stanley Marketplace. This is the show dedicated to telling the stories of Aurora, Colorado. Hi there, I'm Dave, Senior Marketing Manager for Visit Aurora. Right now, Aurora is in a period of evolution and growth. It's the most diverse city in Colorado, where a community of POC leaders and allies are actively supporting that growth. Today, I'm proud to be joined by Denise Soler Cox, a dynamic keynote speaker, filmmaker, writer, top 100 podcaster, teacher, activist, and co-founder of Project Inye. Thanks for joining us today, Denise. Thank you for having me. What other titles should I add to I your accomplished resume? Mom, uh, great mom, and uh, happy wife. I, I think <laughs> mom was probably the most blaring one that I missed, right? Can you talk a little bit about the mission of Project Inye? Yeah, so the mission of Project Enya was created to support first-gen American-born Latinos or anyone that ever felt ni de aquí ni de allá. It's an expression uh, often uh, spoken to describe the feeling of not feeling like you're from here mm -hmm. or from there. And so that is the project that housed our award-winning film, Being Enya. And we created a whole bunch of other, I would say, spin-off products outside of that, like the podcast, for example. How, how do you like the podcast space? It's a really interesting space to kind of have these long form conversations and really have a deep dive. Whereas traditional media, you just have these little clips that you get fed, but a podcast really lets you explore these topics. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. We actually launched a long time ago. I think our first podcast for the, it was called the Project Enya Podcast because mm -hmm. I just didn't have any better ideas at right. the time. And then we changed the name to the Selfish Latina Podcast. And actually now that podcast is on pause, but my experience working on it was really positive and it was great to be able to speak to people and more in depth, have those interviews be completely recorded from end to end and, and presented. And then we got into really doing like more heavier editing. And so then people would only kind of hear clips and we would try to tell a story very much like, I would say a documentary style podcast is sort of where we mm -hmm. ended up with the Selfish Latina. And now we're just on pause uh, with that. And I'm actually soon to be releasing a brand new podcast called The Queen of Belonging. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to go back to your film for a second. Um, Being Inye takes a deep dive into the idea of cultural belonging. How did your childhood lay the, the groundwork for your life's work? Yeah, so it's funny what they say that our we don't choose the work that we do, our jobs choose us. And that was definitely the case with me. I often felt disconnected like a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. I felt like I didn't belong where I grew up. I didn't belong in Puerto Rico, which was where my mother is from. Um, or that was my lived experience, right? right? And so because of that, I had this whole childhood to reflect on in areas of my life that I guess I felt these breaks in belonging and I really wanted to help other people realize they weren't alone and that indeed they belonged and that was the root of the film um, and the story that we told with Being Enya. It's also an important glimpse into American history this time period where first generation were in a position where they weren't taught Spanish necessarily because there was going to be a stigmatization of that, right? So it's it's a sad portion of our of our history, I think, where people weren't allowed to be culturally themselves fully for fear of being 
discriminated against. Yeah, I mean, and that's still true today. There's yeah. a lot of, uh, oftentimes, decisions are made. Uh, any parent that's listening to this will know for sure that we want what's best for our children. Mm -hmm. And we oftentimes, out of love, will try to protect them. And in the case of language, oftentimes people are, were and are, when they show up with an accent, treated like second-class citizens, right. like they're not intelligent, like they don't know what's going on, like they may be even illegal, quote-unquote, not right. even supposed to be here, and people bring their politics into mm -hmm. it. And so for all of those reasons, and so many more, um, people, you know, parents decide to to not teach their kids Spanish because they want to protect them or they want to make sure that they're fully um, versed in English and so and that they have no accent at all so that they can guarantee the most success. And what happens is when a child isn't given their home language, like their mother tongue, the tongue of their parents and the homeland, that child ends up feeling even more disconnected and more disjointed from, from that mother country. And so while it's an act of love, it also causes pain. And so that's, I guess, where the crux of my work kind of lives, mm -hmm. not only in language, but in that place I call the crunch. Mm -hmm. It's between these two different worlds. And oftentimes we're told, oh, you're bicultural. Oh, um, you're two things. Two things are better than one. And, um, and that's, I'll say, true to an extent, but it also has a downside to it that a lot of people don't talk about. And it's not like I'm about speaking about negative things per right. se. It's more acknowledging that there is a challenge and some suffering and that deserves some, you know, to bring some light to it more so people can heal. Right. There's an inadvertent disconnecting from heritage when you don't provide your children with that ability. But again, you're doing it to protect them in the face of a society that isn't fully embracing of that. Meanwhile, your experience is largely air quotes American, whatever that means. So being a part of the American culture, you know, makes you feel like an outsider as well. So you can really feel like you're on an island, I imagine. Very much so. And the thing is, is that what we're talking about is the American experience, right? right? True. And so I think a lot of times people think apple pie and lemonade right. is like, what's American? But right. what's American is really struggling to find mm -hmm. one's place and one's identity and some kind of place between the old and the new, you know, for all different kinds of ethnicities and nationalities. The journey from vision to final project for your film couldn't have been easy. You overcame a lot of adversity and obstacles to bring your vision to life. What drove you to, to keep going when it seemed like the odds were stacked against you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's All fair. I know is that the night that I had the idea for the film, I realized that I wasn't alone. Yeah. And I I had the idea for the film when I was 26, and I didn't get started until 17 years later wow. because I felt like I wasn't um, I wasn't Latina enough. Ultimately, I felt like I wasn't the right person because not only did I not have any training, I also just didn't feel like I was the best candidate for the job. Really? I, yep, and I really struggled with that until one day I just said, I'm just gonna do it anyway because I feel like this is what I'm here to do. Um, but the, the feeling that I had the night that I realized I wasn't alone from living a lifetime believing that I was is unforgettable. Hmm. And I wanted to transfer that feeling to as many people as possible. Possible. And so it was and still is my mission. It has it has yet to wane. If anything, it's only increased and I'm continued to be gassed up by it. 
the idea that when I transfer to you or anyone standing in front of me or in a screening or in any in any place that I also take up space, if I can convince that person that they're not alone in their greatest pain and their greatest disconnection, I believe that's my way of changing the world. That's so poignant because we all suffer from imposter syndrome and there's probably a feeling of this is an important story to tell, but what makes me the authority or the mouthpiece for this. But your perspective may just be that ignition to the conversation to really make people feel better about themselves, their experience, and and to really create change. Yes. Along with your keynote speeches and, and being a mom, you have another film and another book in the works. Can you talk a little bit about those projects? Yeah, so right now, the the thing that's the most priority on my list is my book. And um, the book is really derived from conversations. I say I've had about a thousand one-on-one conversations about belonging since the film came out in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so with the small interruption of the pandemic, I've done around 300 events, most of them live and in person. And people would wait, as they do now, um, to talk say hi, say thank you, and oftentimes share a personal story. And one thing that happened that I thought was arbitrary and something I didn't understand at first was oftentimes at least one person would share a secret with me. And I didn't know why, and it didn't make any sense because I had actually withheld my secrets Mm -hmm. from the first film. So once this began happening with some serious, I would say consistency, and where it was at least one person at every screening, I realized that there's something to this when people feel connected from a lifetime of feeling disconnected. The very first thing that some of them wanna talk about and share about are the things they withhold, yeah. right? And or the ways in which they're not connected to life, the barriers that they've put in front of themselves, and oftentimes they're secrets that they've been taught to keep secrets. So there's right. another saying in Spanish, los trapos sucios se lavan en casa, and that's basically our version of we keep our dirty laundry at home, mm-hmm. so we don't share it. And um, and I know other communities do the same thing. Latinos have our own version of it. Right. And I began to realize that um, the secrets we keep are what's between us experiencing full belonging. And it's a really, really aspirational idea for me to tackle that in a book and say, you know what, if I can show you and tell you some of my secrets and let you know I'm okay. You right? open the door. Right. And I can, and, and hopefully through the reading of the book, people will see, wow, you know what, the way she described that thing and the way that she kind of got to the end of the chapter and gives me some ideas on how I can approach it or what I could do with it um, from the point, the next, you know, what's the next thing? And hopefully I address the secrets that they're keeping. And I know that I am because I keep the same secrets that everybody else keeps. And I know that because people told me. And so, um, and so that's the book. The book is trying to address the most core issue, which is what I'm the most ashamed of you knowing about me, will make me feel like I don't belong, or currently makes me feel like I don't belong here. And it's not in the telling of the secret that creates belonging, it's in me forgiving myself for mm-hmm. keeping the secret and telling, let's say, some, you know, getting help, let's say if that secret's caused me pain and held me back in my life. And then ultimately, if someone does wanna share it with people, then they're free, because our secrets don't have to bind us. Our secrets actually can set us free. Yeah. 
and I think a lot of people know that in theory, but um, it takes courage. That, it takes courage, <laughs> and I've had the experience of being able to share some of mine and realize not only am I okay. I actually experienced myself as more powerful because I realized, wow, not only did I not die after I shared it, but I feel ev- like I'm living a more authentic me. Yeah. Did the book pour out of you? Did it? Was it one of those situations where once you got started, it was just Hell a release? Hell no. Really? <laughs> no. Really? Yes, because I, I lived a lifetime of withholding. Okay, And fair. the premise yeah. of the book is, let me share some of these things that I've kept secret, um, and that 99% of the people in my life, the closest people in my life don't even know. Mm. And so actually, I'm. it's taken a very long time, and oftentimes after I finish a chapter, um, I... I need a few months of an emotional breather. Okay. And actually went into a little bit of a, um, or I was not a little bit, a significant depression um, this spring after working on probably one of the hardest secrets mm. that I've kept. And I had, I gave myself that time to work through those feelings. And, and I want to be an example to other people like, yeah, you know what? You can deal with these. You can share these. Um, and I've yet to even share them publicly, but just typing it, just writing it down, remembering it caused some trauma for me. But the trauma was, wow, that really happened. And I've spent yeah. a lifetime ignoring it and ignoring all the feelings associated with it. And then I just allowed myself to feel. And that really sucked for yeah. like three weeks. And then I popped out of it and was the better. And and I just want to say for anyone dealing with anything mental health wise, like um, it would have been a good it would have been a good point for me probably to reach out um, to get some help. And I had my husband kind of on watch. I said, listen, if I feel like I can't handle this today, you know, we had a plan. Mm-hmm. And so every single day I just said, no, I'm good. I'm good. I just basically needed to check out of my life for about three weeks. And um, and then one day I woke up and I, I, what was happening is I was waking up and crying and I couldn't stop. And then one day I woke up and I just didn't cry. And I was I had gotten to the other side of this. Wow. And it was really miraculous. And so, um, yeah, so for whoever's listening, um, it's okay to go to therapy, it's okay to be on medication, it's okay yeah. to deal with all of these things. And for me, my choice was I'm just going to see how how long this lasts. And if it lasts too long, then I'm going to go get help. And so I had a plan and my husband was my support system. And I've actually never shared this publicly. So I hope this helps somebody listening. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's powerful. Your heart and soul is in this book. Yes. When is it available and what's it called? Yeah. Well, so it's not. um, So I'm actually still in the book proposal stage. And and it's about to be sold. There's a major publisher waiting to buy it. Wonderful. And um, and so it probably will likely not come out until the earliest end of next year. Okay. And um, and probably reasonably uh, the beginning of 2024, which is kind of crazy. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you for for sharing that. This seems like a very basic, but it's not. It's a very complex question. Why is identity so important? Identity is important because. That's where confidence comes. That's where creativity comes. That's where connection comes from, right? They're born out of having a strong identity, understanding who we are and where we fit into the world that we fit into. If we experience these breaks in belonging and we have 
and we don't have like a good grip on who we are, it's kind of like not missing the gym when you're used to working out. You know, we know people that go to the gym five days a week, they're strong, Mm -hmm. right? People that don't are only getting weaker every single day, right? And so it's it's in that and similar to that in that when when we know who we are and we're exercising that identity, like this is what I'm about, this is not what I'm about. This is my boundary here, please don't cross it, Mm -hmm. right? There's when we have these strong identities, we we can box ourselves in the very po- best possible way. So we know what we can take, we know what we're available for, what we're unavailable for. And in the living of that life, it only gets stronger and stronger and stronger. The more I tell you, this is my line, okay, you can, this is what I'm okay with, this is not what I'm okay with, yeah. then it just gets stronger. And then that strength, I can use that strength to be a contribution to my community if I choose, right? But it's a continuum. So if I'm stuck, still figuring out my identity and still I can literally live a lifetime not feeling grounded, let alone understanding boundaries, let alone understanding why I don't feel confident here and more confident here. And so what I do is I teach people how to feel grounded. I give them an opportunity to understand um, where they are in in place, right? And then we can take them on a journey, but it's scary right? Because mm-hmm. we can sometimes feel like there are threats. Like, I don't know if I'm a true or real Latino if I right. if I pursue this or if I get help. In my community, it's often not okay to go to therapy. Right. Mental health is not um, seen as, it's seen as a luxury for the most part. There's always exceptions. It's seen as something that white people do or people outside the community do. Um, it's not, and, and you're supposed to not reach out for help. No one's supposed to know our secrets. See how it can be such a... Um, complicated situation. So once someone feels that strength and identity, then they can sort of move through this continuum and then hopefully somewhere at the end decide to be a contribution to their community, right? Um, But the reason why we haven't gotten there yet for lots of people is because there's that instability in one's identity. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. How can we as a society be more permissive and accepting of of people who are feeling like they're not belonging? Well, I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to admit that they don't feel like they belong or when they do admit that they feel like they don't belong, it's already, it's not too late, but they're already deeply upset about it, right? And so I think it's extremely important, the work that's being done right now in communities where they're prioritizing in very much the same way that you introduce this podcast, it makes someone like me feel safe right? Like, oh, that's a priority. Where there's a stated priority, um, where people of color f- can feel comfortable, right? There's there's words and then there's actions. Right. So we can start with the words and then we can follow it up with action. And so just me being on this podcast is an action. And so very simply put, that is what that is what anyone can do, especially in in a workplace, uh, in communities um, as well. You know, stating the goal and then you know doing the do right. It's interesting that you bring that up. Um, you know, a lot a lot of companies have instituted diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, um, and it would seem that that's a sign of progress. But of course, without action, these are just glorified PR campaigns, right? Yeah. What responsibility do employers have specifically to arm these initiatives with meaningful action? Well, the thing is, employers, especially you know this the this the. the, the Everyone's technically a stakeholder, right? Because right. no one wants to lose their job. No one wants to get fired. Mm-hmm. And it's the leadership at the companies, the, the people who own the companies, 
Um, it would be very important for them to understand the studies that are out there right now um, around belonging. Companies make more money when people feel like they belong. It's They can retain one of the biggest issues right now in professional organizations. I work a lot with Fortune 500 companies. The number one issue is we can't keep our Latino employees and they're scratching their heads wondering why and it's because they're not understanding what it's going to take to understand those people. They're relating to them the way that it, it in an ideological way that doesn't make sense for Latinos. So Latinos are and anyone from Africa and anyone from Asia are collective dominant. They prioritize family. We prioritize we put that at the top. Mm-hmm. We ha- we live in a hierarchical kind of situation. Uh, self-reliance is a dominant idea ideology here in the United States, Northern Europe and Australia, and that prioritizes the individual. All structures in the United States are built from a self-reliant mm-hmm. lens, putting the individual at the center. This is in 100% conflict with what me, a very white passing looking Latina, right, who looks very adjusted, very assimilated, um, I still feel uncomfortable in, in mostly self-reliant environments. I know how to navigate them, I mm-hmm. know how to win in them, and I'm incredibly uncomfortable in them. So much more uh, comfortable in groups, I'm more comfortable where my my collective, um, where we think about other people, where we make decisions. Uh, there's certain considerations that happen with collective dominant people that simply do not exist in a self-reliant dominant workplace. And so understanding the complexities of that, the expressions of that is priority number one. So after the stated goal, after the DEI effort, after even, um, you know, after even some action, some training, there has to be a depth of understanding of the ideological differences and an observation. Wow, all the marginalized communities, um, black, Asian, Latino, right? All people of color that, that work at our company, it seems as though we cannot retain them. If this is the case, then your business is being run, your community, your organization is being run in a self-reliant, dominant fashion, and you need to have someone with an expertise in collective dominance to understand how to make those people feel like they belong. And it's not just a one-day thing. This isn't like take a shower and I don't have to take a shower for the rest of my life. (laughs) It's like you have to take a shower every day. This is an active thing. It's not a check the box thing. It's a seat at the table every day thing. It's every day, all day, yes. And so that's the depth of commitment. And at the end of the day, right, you get to make more money, company. You get to right. ha- be more successful. You get to have your employees stay <laughs> and be loyal because belonging creates such a beautiful environment. Who would ever want to leave? Belonging is, and this is my definition of belonging. You don't want to do anything else with anybody else anywhere else. And so, who wouldn't want their employees to feel that way about where they work? And the work is understanding, oh, in which ways is self-reliant dominance expressing itself in the workplace? And how can we make sure that our collective dominant people not assimilate them more to self-reliance, but how do we edge closer to collective dominance? It's a really interesting conversation. And we're in the beginner 101 level, sometimes almost first grade or mostly out of kindergarten right now with the at-large public. And that's a lot of the work that I do on stages is I introduce this idea 
and it ends up being like this aha moment for a lot of people. And then sometimes I get to come into those companies and work with them if they're ready, if they're ready to do the work. And the work isn't about blame. The work is like a really inspired conversation because it's coming from a place that isn't about, um, it's not about blaming, it's about taking responsibility for everyone in a way that most people, most organizations have yet to do. That's a powerful insight on the other side of that spectrum, or at least another facet of that spectrum, the last 10 to 15 years, social media has seemed to have created a lot of spaces for people who feel isolated to find a community to share and feel included. Obviously, there's a lot of negativity behind social media as well. But in your view, has has social media helped or hindered progress in regards to voices being heard and people feeling a sense of community and inclusion? I think it's helped and tremendously. Now, of course, I think with most things, there's always the a front of the hand and the back of the hand. Right. There's always that, right? Law of polarity. But um, for the most part, it helps a lot of collective dominant people uh, maintain community and create community. And, and we were talking about my podcast early on. We created the podcast before we made the movie because I knew if I built community Mm -hmm. around these stories that the people would come later. And that's exactly what happened. What's your perception of Aurora and, and more specifically the various communities that call this place home? So I'm always curious about Aurora. I'm always curious about the Latinos here. I hear there's amazing food here. Mm-hmm. Also love, love, love where we are at right now. This has to be one of my favorite destinations, I would say, in all of this entire area where we live, uh, is the Stanley Marketplace. I have a lot of great memories here and have eaten a lot of really good food here. So <laughs> uh, we're, we're in the business of promoting Aurora, not only to, to visitors, but to residents in the metro area who may not know how special this place is. What are the implications when, when visitors choose to vote with their dollars and support POC owned businesses? Here's the thing. That's really the only vote that counts, right? Because yeah. I can say, oh, yeah, we support our, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially being a mom, <laughs> a lot of there's a lot of parents that talk how much they love diversity, right? right? And it's a kind of a conversation that um, I get, a, it's an area that I get triggered, I'll admit it, right? Um, and it's like, well, then check out the restaurants, spend the money there, go there, right? If someone's contemplating bringing a group here, actually bring them here because no difference is made from talking. Talking is awesome, talking is what we're doing, that's the beginning, right? And action at the end of the day is the only thing of consequence. And I know that's harsh, I'll say it's my New York uh, you know, background um, and you know, so when groups are considering coming here and they're like, hmm, just like me, I moved here, I'm a New Yorker that moved to Miami that really didn't have a sense of what this area was like and how isolated I would personally feel. That is the honest truth. And I didn't move back. I found a place, I found home here. It is very comfortable to live here. And had I not given it a chance, had I not um, said, where are my people? Where do I find my place? Um, then I wouldn't I wouldn't have had my family or met my husband here. So it's a, it's a really important thing, especially the people that are deciding on bringing groups here to come and see what's here and put their money where their mouth is and bring bring your group here to discover what's here and support those small business owners that are making a living supporting and serving the public that comes to patronize their their stores. 
Only 45% of Aurora roughly is developed right now. The next 10 to 15 years will really shape this place for generations to come. Um, how should that development be approached to both you know, ensure economic vitality, but, but also to protect marginalized communities? Well, I mean, here's the thing, protecting, how do we celebrate those marginalized communities? Right. I, I'm very biased. There isn't a single Puerto Rican restaurant in all of Denver and the Aurora. I have not, or I know there's some food trucks, but there isn't that, right? And I know, just like the Cuban restaurants, people would flock to the Puerto Rican restaurants. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the same for Central American food, South American food. I mean, there's Maria Empanada down here. Love that, I love empanadas. So Latino people appreciate the food from all the countries and we will drive and we will take our because we we travel in packs we eat in groups right? right so it's actually a really good idea to invite more people especially when it comes to the food conversation and developing and celebrating latinidad here in aurora is to like let's make this the culinary haven let's say wow the best latino food from central south america and the caribbean is in aurora that is a huge opportunity i promise you the people will come because we love good food and we love eating good food with each other. And we have very big families. We gotta find some mofongo around here. Yeah, oh my gosh, yes. Where's the mofongo? <laughs> um, Aurora is also home to Colorado's largest refugee community. It's hard to imagine fleeing what you've known your entire life than kind of being forced to assimilate into a culture and an unfamiliar country. Um, how can we best honor these people's identities while also creating safe spaces uh, for them to feel included in their new homes? I think celebrating them, I think highlighting them, making sure they get into the media, making sure that the things that they, you know, that we get to know the cultures that they represent. I remember in my early days, way before I worked on the film, I was a youth speaker and I was invited to speak at a school, I believe in Aurora. Mm -hmm. and. And they had, I don't know, I think 16 languages spoken at that school and on the bathroom um, door, it was women written in 16 different languages. And my my speech had to be translated. There, there were so many people in the room translating what I was saying to the different people. And I wondered, is what I'm gonna say today even gonna make a difference? Because most of the people there did not speak Spanish. These are other languages right. from the world. And what I realized is, you know what? When people care, like caring has so much weight and showing up. Me showing up for one hour in this class had lines, had people sharing, had people translating, had people appreciating. It doesn't take a lot. I think sometimes people, they don't want to be inconvenienced or they don't know how and they get stuck in the how. It's actually just source your heart. How about just paying attention? How about just inviting? How about, and then the idea of a celebration. How do we pull their stories out from them? How do we, for the people that have talents and gifts and they can create the ones that are making stuff, how do we celebrate that and showcase that? That's interesting. People in Denver love to travel, mm -hmm. right? And all there are all these people here that can that are making jewelry, making beautiful uh, garments, and incredible food that we can be buying and supporting them as they start a brand new life here. So to me, it's all opportunity. 
You once said my absolute favorite version of Denise is the one that I get to be and the one that I choose to be every single day. The beauty is that choice evolves every day as you do. Where do you see your evolution going here and the evolution of your work? The evolution of my work here, uh, and the, so what I was trying to say when I said that was, you know, there's a version of us, and I say the way that I am with my husband and my two besties that I grew up with uh, in New York who happen to live here, I'm very lucky, that Denise is my favorite Denise. Yeah. And that Denise is the one that's sitting with you here today. Thank you. Um, yeah, and so, um, and it's because you asked me about what I care about the most. Aside from my family, it's the work that I do, right? Yeah. It's not complicated. You, But you took the time to learn about my work and have a single conversation. So I get to bring and embody this version of me that's my favorite. Now, a lot of people, um, have a lot of layers, right? Or a lot of people call it being buttoned up or professional mm -hmm. or what have you, some other version of them that they think is, that they deem is more acceptable for others. And I figured out a way just to bring that Denise, right? That I've done all this work, therapy, I've read books, done seminars, and at the end of the day, I got back to, oh, that all of that just to get here, right? Except for my greatest gift that I can give you is being this right here. So my biggest aspiration is just to continue doing that because around people like that, for me, inspire me to bring more authentic, more and a more authentic version of me, right? And when I'm that way, I'm better on stage. I'm better in these interviews. I'm I'm better at life. And so, you know, work going forward is is helping to inspire others to do the same and honoring all the creative ways that I wish to express that. Right now, it's the book. Um, the new podcast and the work that I do on stages and with companies. Well, Denise, it's been an honor to meet you and talk with you for a few minutes. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Learn more about Denise at denisesolaircox.com and Project Inye at projectinye.com and make sure to visit them on Facebook and Instagram at Project Inye. Hey, thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast. Visit Aurora is the official destination marketing organization for the city of Aurora, Colorado and acts as the primary liaison between meeting planners and hotel partners. As Aurora's Convention and Visitors Bureau, Visit Aurora's mission is grounded in showcasing Aurora as a premier destination for meetings, business, and leisure travel. Visit Aurora represents more than 75-plus hotel properties with 13,500-plus guest rooms and more than 1 million square feet of meeting space, including Colorado's largest resort, Gaylord Rockies Resort and Convention Center. As Colorado's third largest city, Aurora is located minutes away from Denver International Airport and showcases mountain views, memorable meeting spaces, and 250-plus international eateries that offer a unique experience for each and every visitor. As as the gateway to the Rockies, Visit Aurora's role in the local community goes beyond marketing the city as a destination. The Visit Aurora team is here to assist you with your Colorado visit from facilitating your meeting, event, or convention to helping you discover local flavor and attractions. Go beyond the boardroom in Aurora, Colorado. For more, visit us at visitaurora.com.